For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, which I entitled a thumbnail of the early church, not to be confused with like a physical thumbnail. It just means a brief description or a little sketch of what the early church was like. You know, last week we talked about, or a couple weeks ago, we talked about the birth of the early church. And then this week we're going to look at a description of what this community looked like how they spent time together, what they spent their time doing. And it gives us sort of a model, an example for the kind of community that we can have. Let's start in verse 42. We're told they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. So we're told, first of all, that they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Remember, the apostles were still around at this time. They were the ones who started the early church. And that would have been really awesome to be able to sit there and listen to Peter or the apostle John teach the Bible. And so they were a community that was really centered on God's truth. They devoted themselves to studying not only the Old Testament passages that spoke about the coming Messiah, Jesus, but also they were listening to the apostles who were authorized to not only speak authoritatively, but also to write what we have in the New Testament. So they had this incredible resource right there, and of course, they took full advantage of this. They, they tried to drink up as much as they could from the apostles. You know, another thing that drew them to the word of God, the written word of God, is that the Bible teaches that God's truth actually contains life-transforming power. That it's not just an academic thing where we study the Bible and learn about the life of Jesus and the background surrounding the New Testament, but that when we turn to the pages of the Bible, we actually are having an encounter with God. We're told by Paul in Romans 12, verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As we study and soak ourselves in the written word of God, we actually undergo a transformation where our values, the way that we think, all of that is changed and replaced with God's values and what he has for, uh, intends for us and his desires. And so this was a, a community that was devoted to truth. And that's really important because, you know, if truth wasn't at the center of what we do here, then we would be nothing more than a social club. You know, really, when you look at many modern churches today, pastors are afraid to really pour out the content. They try to keep their sermons very simple, entertaining, and relevant to people's lives. They they tend to avoid some of the more controversial or difficult passages in the Bible because they're afraid to kind of scare people away. And yet, what we see in this community were people who were devoted to studying the Bible in a really deep way. 
that they went beyond just soaking it in, but they were actually learning it for the purpose of teaching others. And so we see that they were a truth-centered community. Also, we're told that they devoted themselves to these things. It's almost like you could put a colon right at the end of devoted and the rest of this description follows that they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They continually devoted themselves to fellowship and so on. Now, in the New American Standard Bible, I think that it captures the the Greek phrase a little bit better. Namely, that they were continually devoting themselves. It's an active present. So it's something that was an ongoing thing that they continually engaged in. So they were really devoting themselves continually to the Word of God. And they were also devoting themselves continually to fellowship. Now, we don't use this term very often today. I guess in academic circles, they talk about you know, having a fellowship or something like that. But its, intent, its uh, use in the New Testament was commonly um, describing to have in common or to share. The Greek word koinonia means to uh, share with one another. So essentially what these people were doing is they were sharing the life of Christ that they had with one another. And so they were, they were describing a community that was deeply relational, that they were spending regular time with one another. They were not just, you know, sitting around and bantering about sports and weather, but they were actually engaging on a deeper level. They were sharing their lives with one another and pouring out their struggles and the new insights that God was giving to them. We are told further in verse 46 that every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Every day. Now, that's a real foreign concept, I think, in our our modern American church. You know, to think that people would devote more time than just, you know, once a week to hanging out with people from your church every day. I mean, you know, I'm not sure that the NIV really uh, does this justice. It's, it's more like day by day. So it wasn't actually every single day, but most days. Again, you know, when you look at the modern church today, when you think about church, what is it? It's something that you do once a week on Sunday morning for a couple hours, right? And then you go on for the rest of your week and and live your life. These guys took it to the next level. They're actually spending most days together assembling and gathering and sharing in this fellowship. Our culture is highly individualistic. People in our culture are not really into this concept of organized religion or institutional religion. So when you talk to most people, they'll tell you, yeah, you know, I'm a spiritual person. I really like the concept of God, but I like pursuing God on my own. I feel like that's my avenue or my pathway to God. But when you look at the New Testament church, really it stands in opposition to this concept of modern American individualism. The Bible never envisions a Christian believer pursuing God by themselves. 
And really, that stands at odds with many of the things that we read about in the Bible, that these instructions that God gives to us that we need to confess to one another, that we need to bear one another's burdens, that we need to encourage one another, that all of those things don't make any sense if we apply modern American individualism to Christianity. And so these guys were deeply relational. They, they were sacrificing their time, carving out time in order to spend with other believers. Also, we're told that they were breaking bread and uh, devoting themselves to prayer. Now, this breaking of bread probably refers to engaging in what's called the Lord's Supper. And we studied this a few weeks ago when we were studying the book of Luke. And this idea of sharing the Lord's Supper or communion was a way to commemorate God's sacrifice for us. Jesus said, when you break this bread and you drink this wine, you are celebrating or remembering what I've done for you. And so these guys were regularly spending time in communion with one another and reflecting on how awesome God's sacrifice was through Christ. And they were devoting themselves to prayer. So this suggests that they were a God-centered community, that they were actively depending on God, that they were actively focusing on the things of God, and that they were doing this not only individually, but also corporately. Jesus says that when we pray to him, that we have access to him. But the Bible goes further to say that when we spend time with one another in prayer, in corporate prayer, that God is with us in a special way. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 19 and 20. He said this to his disciples, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything that you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am among them. So these guys were spending time together, praising and thanking God, requesting things on behalf of their community to God. And they felt this sense of excitement about what God was doing. That's why, you know, when you come to a meeting like this, we, we try to spend a little bit of time at the very beginning in corporate prayer and at the end because we're trying to model what we're doing here off of what we see in the early church. Also, it says that everybody was filled with awe. Boy, that's a pretty foreign concept to what you see in the modern American church. Most people stand in awe of how boring the church is today. But these guys, they were filled with awe because of all the great things that God was doing. You know, think about just probably days earlier, people saw 3,000 individuals turn their lives over to Christ. That must have been an incredible experience. And so it filled them with wonder and awe over what God was doing. And you'll see this. You'll see this in a community where people are regularly coming to Christ, where you see people's lives being transformed through the Holy Spirit, there's a sense of awe in what God is doing. And we're also told that the apostles were performing many wonders and miraculous signs. So 
what they had here was they were witnessing supernatural events on a regular basis. Remember that event earlier in chapter 2 where the you know, tongues of fire, what looked like tongues of fire, descended upon the disciples and they started speaking in these foreign languages and people were hearing the message of Christ in their own language, even though they knew these guys did not know how to speak their language. If you look at that event, as well as the rest of the book of Acts, I mean, there are numerous miracles that were happening. And so these were authentic miracles. And I stress that because, you know, there are some church movements today where they really emphasize this whole idea of signs and wonders. And they are trying to mimic the early, uh, the early church here what they read in the book of Acts by trying to simulate these signs and wonders. And so a lot of their meetings are centered on trying to, to get God to do something miraculous in their midst, often speaking in tongues and people being healed. But often this will lead to people feeling pressure or expectation to, to have a miracle performed in their midst. I remember uh, talking to a woman who used to be in my group, and she said that uh, when she grew up in a church like this, that at one meeting she was sitting around and her friends uh, spontaneously started uh, speaking in tongues, you know, these inexpressible angelic languages. And they were all kind of looking at her with this expectation that she needed to participate in this. And so she felt left out and was sort of like, what do I do? And she's like, I guess I'll fake it. And was just like, you know, and just made it up. We should never feel like we need to fake it, okay? When we experience something miraculous, it's something that it's genuine. You know, people will bear witness to the fact that this was something awesome that God has done. You know, signs and wonders were probably more common back then too. You have to consider that this was a special era or time period in God's plan of salvation. So he probably was giving these miraculous signs and wonders in order to validate his message because he knew that people were going to be skeptical that he was now putting into place this new plan that was different than what they had been doing for thousands of years. These signs and wonders were almost a stamp of approval showing the people who were there, this is from me, this is from God. And finally, I think that we still see miracles today, but maybe not of the kind that we see in the book of Acts where people are getting healed regularly. And, you know, honestly, I'm not really sure that when you look at the book of Acts that what they were experiencing was normative. It's not like people were coming up and saying, oh, man, there's Peter again healing all those people. You know, it, it wasn't like an everyday thing. People were in awe of what was happening. It was miraculous. But today, even though we don't see those kind of healings and stuff in, a, in our Western church, I do think that we see many miracles happening. Namely, that people are experiencing life transformation. I mean, I look around this room, and there are probably hundreds of people in this room now who've experienced incredible transformation. People whose lives were a wreck before they met Christ, shattered. And God has completely changed these people. And, it, and it's really a work of God. 
It's miraculous. Also, we're told that all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods, and they gave to anyone who had need. We need to remember that what was happening was these people who came to Passover. Remember uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about how God said, when the Passover feast comes, I want you to come to this central location, which was Jerusalem, and to celebrate it there. So many of the people in the early church were probably pilgrims who came from all across the Roman Empire to come and celebrate Passover. And once they received Christ, they decided, you know what? I want to stick around and learn a little bit more before I go home. And so they probably stayed there for months or even years. Problem is, they didn't have any money or possessions. So the early church had to probably band together and put together a collection a communal pot that they distributed to these people who were without a home and without money. When you look at the early church, they were a generous and sacrificial group of people. We get kind of a, fee- a feeling or a taste of this kind of generosity in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, that all the believers were, in, were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own but they shared everything that they had. Can you imagine that? Everybody in a community, you know, maybe 5,000 people or 3,000 people without any need. Not one poor person among them because people were so sacrificial that they were selling off their property, they were selling off their possessions and giving it to those who had less. You know, in our culture today, it's, it's cool to be a charitable giver, you know, to give to an organization, cough up a little bit of money. And, you know, that's a good thing, but I think people in our culture would look down on somebody if they were like, you know what, I'm going to sell my car because this, this person over here is in need and I'm just going to give that to them. They're, you know, people would be like, why are you doing that? That's your car. Why would, why would you go and sell your Xbox to go and give to this person? I mean, you know, you're, you're going way too far with this. These guys didn't feel that way. You know, that's what happens when you encounter the grace of God. When you see that, that God has given you such great blessings in Christ. When you recognize that God has sacrificed his own son for your sake out of the the overwhelming gratitude that you feel toward God, you're willing to share your money and possessions freely. Knowing that God is not only gracious, but also that he's going to provide for your needs if you give generously and sacrificially. Now, we should point out, too, that this wasn't universal or compulsory. You know, it's, it's not like some sort of a hippie commune that they were putting together. And I don't think that that's what God envisions for our community. This must have been a special circumstance because later in Acts chapter 5, Peter actually confronts a couple named Ananias and Sapphira that we're going to read about. And he said to them, um, you know, they, they apparently lied about this plot of land that they allegedly sold off and gave the money to God's cause. And Peter confronted him. He said, was that not your property? And was, was not that money yours even after you sold that property? And so it, 
it's very clear that it wasn't like, if you want to be a part of our community, you need to sell your money or your possessions. This was something that was, they were voluntarily doing. Now, I also think that this points to a couple other things. Namely, that materialism didn't have a stranglehold on this community. And again, I think that when you look at the American church today, we're pretty anemic in this area. That many Christians, although they claim to follow God, although they claim to be committed to his causes, grasp on to their money and their possessions and are unwilling to give on a sacrificial level. That really, many Christians, when you look at their lives, really are no different when it comes to financial giving or simple living than the rest of the world. Not this community. This community lived radically. And they viewed their money not as something that they possessed, but something that God had given to them as a stewardship, as something to handle responsibly for his causes and his purpose. Secondly, it also showed their commitment to God. You meet a lot of Christians who talk a lot about how committed and how faithful they are. They can pray out loud. They can um, talk about theology all day long. But I really believe that when you start to give financially and when you start to give on a sacrificial level, that's really where I think the rubber starts to hit the road in your spiritual life. You know, where the inward starts to conform with the outward. And so these guys showed that they were deeply committed to God because they were willing to stretch themselves and their pocketbooks in order to make sure that people around them weren't in need. Then we're told every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, they broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And we're told the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So every day they continued to meet together. And again, I I feel like the New International Version, which I'm reading, doesn't quite capture what this phrase means. The New American Standard says, day by day, continuing with one mind. I feel like that probably gives a better rendering of what the Greek phrase actually means. You know, the word that's used is homothumadon, which means same, homo, same, and thumos, which means passion or purpose. And so they had the same passion or the same purpose, which suggests that they were unified with one another. There There was unity in their group. And I think when we talk about unity, people in our culture today strive for unity. They desire it. You know, we live in a culture within the last decade or so that has grown increasingly divided. You think about today, you know, it almost seemed like we were past the racial divide. And today it seems like we're more racially divided than ever. Or you think about in politics where, you know, people are more polarized politically now than ever. And so people are going on and on about how we need to uh, work toward, you know, racial uh, integration, 
where, you know, we need to try to get people from different races mixing together, or we need to engage in more bipartisan politics. I mean, for all of that talk over the last decade, we're no more unified now than we ever were. In fact, we seem even more divided. And so our culture longs for this sense of unity. And yet the Bible says that that's not something that we need to try to manufacture. That's not something that we need to strive to attain. The Bible actually says that's something that we already have in Christ. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 3. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Notice his language. He doesn't say, make sure to attain to the unity of the Spirit. He says, make sure to keep the unity of the Spirit. The Bible says that the moment we turn our lives over to Christ, we receive his forgiveness. God actually unites us together with Christ through the Holy Spirit. And that our union with Christ also unites us with one another. And so we have this incredible unity. You know, I, I love the fact that when I look around this room, we're growing more and more diverse. It used to be, you know, I was like the only brown person in, my in the college group. Every time they would do like the Summer Institute brochures, you know, they, they, they would uh, call me up and be like, you know, we need a Filipino dude to come here and um, show that we're culturally diverse. You know, so, so what happened in the last, you know, almost 20 years since, since I came around? It's not like we went around and, and campaigned to have more diversity in our church. It's not like we're, we're trying to pull people together racially. The unity that we have here is, is mainly through Christ. It's, 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 it's what God has done. And it's amazing. And so they enjoyed incredible unity. Also, it says that they met in the temple courts. Now, they weren't actually meeting inside of the temple. The temple was actually a small area, you know, maybe the size of this auditorium or even smaller than that. But Herod actually built large colonnades and uh, temple courts that surrounded the temple where people could gather. And so... Apparently, what happened was the apostles would gather the people together and then they would teach the Bible to the people, probably assembling in the thousands. Now, this calls for, I think, a large meeting where it's important to meet in large groups. And I think that some of the benefits to this would be, first of all, that they could share uh, these common gifts that they had. The Bible says that each person in what he calls the body of Christ, you know, that we are organically linked to one another, that God gives each person a specific gift in order to play our individual role. And God has gifted some to be teachers, some to be incredible leaders, and having these large meetings allows us to be able to share some of these common gifts. You know, imagine... If you were living in the early church times, the New Testament church, and you had access to the Apostle Peter's teaching, that would be awesome. Like, dude, I get to listen to this guy, Peter, who spent time with Jesus. Now, if you only had small groups, it would be pretty hard 
to have to wait for Peter to, to make it finally to your group and to teach your Bible study. And this way, if they assembled in the hundreds or thousands, they could, they could listen to Peter and listen to some real quality teaching. Secondly, uh, you can hide in a crowd, which is kind of nice, I have to say. I remember before I started coming around here, somebody actually invited me to another small group down on campus, and I was real nervous because, you know, I had a pretty crazy background, criminal and all that, and I was like, oh, man, I'm going to stick out like a sore thumb. They're going to, like, want to talk to me. And, uh, you know, I walked in there, and uh, I just had this fear that they were going to, like, call on me and stuff like that or make me stand up and sing some, uh, you know, some uh, worship music with them and uh, made me feel really uncomfortable. Then, you know, somebody brought me to a central teaching like this, which was was smaller at the time, but it was kind of nice to sit back in the back row in the darkness and just kind of observe what everybody was doing and listen to the teaching. And uh, some people who are guests or people who are investigating Christianity, they they don't want to be in a smaller group where they feel like somebody's going to call upon them, which, by the way, that doesn't happen. I I hope that doesn't happen. But, you know, people just want to keep their anonymity and sort of uh, listen to what God has to say and investigate. And so that's one of the benefits of, of meeting in large groups like this. Also, there's a level of excitement that you can generate in having hundreds of people who are excited about following God, praying and sharing. It gives people a sense of, you know, this is, these people really like what they're doing here. They don't, they don't seem like they're being forced to be here. But they also met from home to home. And this also calls for, I think, small group meetings. You know, in smaller groups, it's personal where you can get to know people better. Again, think about the the modern American church where the concept of church is where you go to a big meeting, a big service once a week for a couple hours. It's impossible in a sea of people to try to make deep friendships. That's why you need to break down with, you know, a few dozen people, and that gives you the ability to invest on a deeper level with these people. So it's personal. Secondly, it's interactive. Like I said, God has given each individual in the body of Christ a set of spiritual gifts for you to play your role. And in these small groups, a lot of times the teacher is doing guided discussion, which allows you to express your gift. So if you have the gift of knowledge, for for instance, where God gives you insights from reading the Bible, this is an opportunity for you to be able to share that. And so I think that it is a place where you can see the body of Christ working together. And finally, it's intimate. And I think that's important because, you know, we have a lot of problems. We have a lot of struggles. And I'm sure that nobody's going to want to grab the microphone after this and, and share about some sensitive struggle that they have in front of hundreds of people. But if you break down into smaller groups, it allows you to be able to talk to people about real things, things that are going on in your life without feeling uncomfortable. Now, in Xenos, we have both small and large groups. I mean, this 
meeting is called the central teaching, and we mirror it after this description right here, that they met in large groups. So this isn't just something that like, we kind of made up and, we, you know, a good idea that we came up with. This is something that we are trying to mirror from the book of Acts. And then, of course, our, the, the counter, uh, counterpart to these small groups is our home churches, which meet all over campus. And we're told that they met with glad and sincere hearts. And so this points to the fact that they were authentic, that they were real. You know, we live in a culture where people are constantly trying to put forward an image of themselves that's not real. You know, we feel like people that we encounter are not authentic, that they're fake. And we should be a community that is genuine, that people sense these are real people with real struggles, that they're not trying to put on a front to impress me or the people around them. And that there's real love within a community. That's something that we should strive toward. You know, again, you go to some churches and, you know, there is a lot of hypocrisy. I've talked to people who have described going to youth groups where they just were turned off by what they saw because, you know, here is one of the youth group leaders, one of the, you know, somebody who was also in high school with them. And, you know, they were in the praise band, they were sharing and they were praying but everyone in that room knew that they were, they were sleeping around and smoking weed and just getting high all the time. And it was just like, what? This is not real. You know, people are, are faking it here. Or, you know, where you see in, in certain churches where people try to act like real lovey-dovey, but it's just sort of like creepy and not, not real. I heard a story from my friend where he said a number of years ago he visited this church. He was standing around talking to some people and this guy walked up and started giving non-consensual hugs. Just, just grabbing people and just being, oh, brother, yeah, I love you so much. And they were long, too. They were long embraces. And uh, my friend was like, and then he came up to me and just grabbed me and started hugging me. And he was just like, Oh, it's so weird. I don't even know this person. And he's hugging me and telling me, I love you. It was even weirder because the dude w- was going around to the next person. And he would put his hands out to indicate that he wanted a hug. And he'd go, hugs, hugs. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. We don't want to see that kind of stuff around here. No hugs. (laughs) Yeah, so you want to see something authentic, you know, where people actually love each other. They don't just talk about it or do these fakey displays of, of affection. Also, they were praising God, which meant that they were a group that expressed gratitude, that they were grateful for what God had done. And that as they reflected on what Jesus had done for them and all that God had blessed them with, these guys were breaking out with spontaneous praise of what God had done. And I think that in a community that sees God working powerfully 
you're going to have this happen going on where people are excited that they are expressing thankfulness for who God is and what he's done. Now, it was the opposite of sitting around and complaining and spewing negativity, which you see in a lot of churches, you know, and, and um, ours included. You know, I've, I've been in churches and have been a culprit in this where, you know, I'm sitting around and just complaining about how people aren't loving me enough or how I'm bitter that people aren't meeting my expectations. These guys weren't doing that. They weren't sitting around being negative about people or what God was doing. They were grateful for the community God had given them. You know, praising God will really ignite excitement in a local church. That's why, you know, when we meet together in my group, for a prayer meeting, I really insist that we spend just even a few minutes, maybe the first 10 minutes of our prayer meeting, spending time thanking God for what he's done, trying to recall all of the answered prayers that he has answered within even just the last couple weeks. And you can feel the excitement sort of surge throughout the whole prayer meeting. And then also they were enjoying favor of all the people, meaning that as the people who were non-Christians were looking on at this community, they saw how they loved their own people, that they were sacrificing their money, that they were sacrificing their time, that they were genuinely loving one another, and that people, even though they may not have agreed with what they were teaching, admired the lives that they were living. We should see that too in our community. Sadly, I think this is one of the areas that we probably fall short in. You know, down on campus, we, over the last couple decades and and, um, maybe more, have done some things that has damaged our reputation with people down on campus. You know, either having a, a trashed house or being real disrespectful to neighbors when they're telling us to to be quiet. And so I think this is something that we could do better on, to work to try to build a good reputation among the people down on campus. And finally, we're told the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Again, if if you had this whole description of a community that loved one another, that sacrificed all of their stuff for one another, that were devoted to studying the Bible and praying together, but they weren't focused on how they could love people outside of their community, this would be nothing more than a holy huddle. This whole description would really read differently without that one statement. And so this group was a group that was outreaching. You know, God doesn't want to give us this great life so we could just sort of keep it to ourselves. He wants to give us this great life and this great community so that it could be an attractive picture to the rest of the world that knows nothing about the love of God and that it could be a venue for us to be able to share the message and love of Jesus Christ with people. Now, what do we do with this? You know, some people would say, well, that's a cool picture, but I'm just not sure that that's for us. I mean, you know, Going as far as selling your possessions and meeting almost uh, every day throughout the week. I mean, that's weird. 
I mean, that's fanaticism. It's bizarre, right? That you would do something like that. I mean, you got to get a grip. It's okay to have a little bit of religion and spirituality in your life, but I mean, you just cannot take it that far. But I think we should also consider the alternative. You know, when we look around at our culture, you know, does spending days and nights without any meaningful human relating, is that normal? You, know, you look around our, at our culture today and most people feel like they don't have anybody that they can talk to. And the people that they consider their friends, they feel like they can't really share anything real with them. What about this? Living in a sea of people who have no idea what's really going on in our lives. I remember distinctly as a person who didn't know Christ, I had all of these people, you know, a, a couple dozen friends who I considered to be my best and closest friends. You know, we would, we would drink on the weekends and get high, and we would have these parties. And I remember one time standing at a party just stoned, drunk, and uh, just standing there, and here are all these people that I was surrounded with, my friends, and yet I felt completely alone. Ever felt that way before? Surrounded by your so-called friends, but feeling completely alone? I mean, that's, what our cult- that's where our culture's at. What about never experiencing actual intimacy with a community of people? Yeah, we can remember when we played on a sports team that, that did pretty well, and we had that camaraderie. But, you know, we've sort of moved on and, and drifted apart. You know, you look at most people today in our culture, and they don't even know their neighbors, even though they, they live, you know, just 100 feet away from them. I mean, is that normal? Is that the way we should be living? What about choosing to spend hours in front of a screen over deep human relating? According to uh, the Nielsen Research Media, they, they are the ones who, who watch how we consume media and, and TV. They say that on average, an adult 18 and over spends about five hours a day watching live TV. And then in addition to that, in the blue and orange that is using internet on a computer and using your smartphone, so an additional two hours. So we're talking about seven hours a day, on average, sitting in front of a screen. You know, if you, if you crunch the numbers on this, so five hours a day, um, and you take that and expand it to an entire year, what you end up with is two months of your life, a year that's devoted to watching TV. And yet, when you look at our culture, you know, people are crying out that they're lonely, that they, they have nobody to turn to. In a recent study, the researchers found that nearly 50% of people say that they had one person or no one at all with whom they could talk about serious matters. And that included their family members and their spouse. One person. Is that normal? 
Is that the way we should be living? Should we, should we follow our culture? And yet the real irony here is that even though people are crying out for real meaningful interaction, for close relating, they're unwilling to give up their screen time. They're unwilling to carve out their time in their week in order to spend time with people. You know, the question we need to ask ourselves is, is Luke's sketch of the early church an extreme picture of religious fanaticism? I think if you look at the way our culture is living, the answer is hell no. We are the ones who are dysfunctional. We are the ones who are bizarre. We are the ones who are weird. Not what the Bible describes. We're the ones who are really off here. You know, there's, there's really no wonder why we live in a culture where people are depressed, are anxious, highly medicated, lonely. I bet you a large part of that has to do with the fact that we have decided that relationships don't matter. And that these other things, these other things that we're pursuing matter more. So what prevents us from having this today? You know, if you look at the conditions then and the conditions now, are they really that different? I mean, back then they had the Holy Spirit. Well, as it turns out, we have the Holy Spirit today too. The same exact one who possesses the same amount of power. They were humans. We are humans. Same thing, right? Back then, they lived in an ocean of people who didn't know God. And yet today, we live in an ocean of people who don't know God as well. You know, as you walk down on campus, here are these people who, uh, many of them don't know where their lives are headed. They feel aimless. They feel lost. Back then, God was God. Well, as it turns out, today, God is still God. Back then, you know, it was a wild culture where people were, were um, engaged in hedonism and sexual immoral behavior, partying. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever taken a jaunt down on campus on Friday night. Things haven't really changed that much. We still li- we'll live in a wild culture. So nothing really has changed there. So what prevents us from having this today? I think, first of all, cynicism. For many people, it's that we just don't believe that we can accomplish this. This is not attainable. And I think if we have a cynical attitude toward this picture that God has given to us of the church, then we're never going to attain it. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, maybe we have prior loyalties where we have devoted ourselves to success and career We feel like going to a meeting and and hanging out with other Christians, it's optional, but God forbid that I would ever miss my workout today. And so maybe we need to consider what are our priorities? And if we truly prioritize God, are we willing to make sacrifices for that priority? For some of us, it's materialism, the pursuit of money that we live for our money and our possessions, and that consumes us. It eats up our time. It eats up all of our mental energy, leaving really nothing for God. You know, really, the answer is nothing is holding us back from having this. 
There's really nothing that, that stands in our way that prevents us from having this picture that God wants to give us. So let's draw a few points of application here. I think, first of all, you should devote yourself to some time building relationships. You know, some of us uh, feel that aching sense that we are all alone, that we can't turn to anyone. Well, God says that he has placed you in this community if you're a follower of Christ. And uh, he's surrounded you with people who want to help you out, who want to get to know you. But it's going to take some time. It's going to take effort on your part in order to build those relationships. It's not going to be easy. Secondly, get equipped so you can play your part. You know, God says that you have a very special role, a part to play in his great plan of salvation. But you need to play your part in making sure that you get equipped, that you learn what God says, that you learn how to share your faith, that you learn um, how to be able to relate to people in a sophisticated way. And finally, if you're here tonight and you don't know God personally, and you're looking at this description and you think to yourself, that's something I want. The first step that you need to take is let God place you into the body of Christ. And the way to do that is to turn to God and ask for God to forgive you for what you've done through Jesus Christ. And the moment that happens, he will place you into his community and you can be a part of what he describes here in Acts chapter 2. Yeah, Lord, um, <clears throat> I'm just really happy that uh, what we have here is, um, even though we have some shortcomings and areas that we probably need to work on, that we are getting close to this picture, Lord. And um, I'm excited about that. I'm excited that uh, we have embraced this. And I pray that we would strive even, for, even more to uh, try to mirror this picture that you give to us through Luke. And um, Lord, I just uh, really thank you so much for uh, the community of people that you've put around me. And... Um, that I get to play even a small role in this great plan that you have uh, through the church. And uh, finally, Lord, I pray for those of us who um, find this picture appealing and yet um, don't really know if uh, they have a relationship with you in the, in the first place, that they, uh, in their hearts, would just turn to you and um, allow you to place them into your body by receiving Christ. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.